Hello and welcome to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods, the show that tries to unpick the unfathomable mysterious world of research methods to help me and you to understand them. In this series, we'll be looking at five different research methods with an expert from the field and a dementia researcher that has put that method into practice. My name is Leah Fulliger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton and I research dementia care and faecal incontinence. As a rule, I'm much more comfortable talking about poo and the things that come out of your body than I am talking about research methods. So as expected, when I got to my methodology section of my thesis, I panicked and went, this is harder than I thought it's going to be. So together, we're gonna go on a voyage of discovery through the fascinating world of research methods. Today, we are packing our dictaphones and putting the kettle on as we explore a qualitative researcher's favorite method, interviewing. Joining me as we journey into this method are two very special guests. In the expert corner is Dr. Karin Hughes from the University of Leeds. Karin is the director of the Timescapes Archive, editor-in-chief of Sociological Research Online, convener of the MA Qualitative Research Methods and a senior fellow for the NCRM. Hello, Karin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. It's quite the CV. It is, yes. <laughs> it's quite it's quite a busy workload as well. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, our jobbing researcher for today is conversation analyst, qualitative researcher and NIHR School for Primary Care Research Fellow from the University of Bristol, Dr Jemima Dooley. I feel like a round of applause is needed there. <laughs> <laughs> Jemima has recently taken up surfing and skateboarding, I hear, but seems to be all in one piece. Hello, Jemima. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, yes, I well, I have to admit I've given up skateboarding uh, since having my baby because I didn't really want to give birth with a broken ankle. <laughs> no, <laughs> my skateboarding abilities were not were not were not great. <laughs> I've only ever tried skateboarding once and I couldn't even stand up on it. So you probably got further than that. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> but yes, no, surfing's more fun. You, when you fall off, you're just in water. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you here. Karen, have you taken up any hobbies recently? Um, yeah, uh, scuba diving. Um, oh, really? I'm, yeah, I know. Yeah, but it's I'm so I'm I'm still on the fence with it. It's it's pretty scary actually. Um, so I don't mind shallow dives, but um, when you go into depth, then it gets very cold and dark. I'm not keen. So mm. I'm, I'm I think I might be a fair weather diver. Mm. Do you do it sort of? in the UK yeah off, off the coast of North Wales yeah yeah that must be so, absolutely yeah, freezing been, yeah it, it's it, actually this summer it's been fantastic the water's been wonderfully warm and I've swum with seals and seen dolphins and things like that so it's been pretty special so what do I know we're going to begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand to be the interviewing research method which I hope our listeners will relate to So when I think of interviewing, I'm imagining asking a series of open-ended questions um, to someone living with dementia, asking them about their life, their symptoms, and um, how they feel as required by the study. I imagine interviewing to be more of an explorative method. So you're sort of looking for a wide range of data rather than specific points and then analysing the results. 
Oxford bibliographies say that interviewing methodology is perhaps the oldest of all social science methodologies. Asking interview participants a series of informal questions to obtain knowledge has been commonplace among anthropologists and sociologists since the inception of these disciplines. Although sociologists have been carrying out interview-based research for some time, it was the work of Barney Glazer and Anselm Strauss from Chicago that pioneered the integration of qualitative interviews into their field studies and subsequently developed the grounded theory approach to qualitative data analysis. So, Karen, with the history lesson dealt with and my vague attempt to describe the technique, would you like to give us a slightly more formal introduction to this method? Less a formal introduction, more of a, a snapshot. So I absolutely agree about interviewing being, um, you know, one of the oldest methodologies because it is based in a very human form of communication and interaction. This is what we do with each other all of the time. So, um, you know, you get up in the morning and you say, you know, how was your night? How did you sleep? <laughs> or I'm feeling like this because, you know, so it just is in conversation. We, we ask each other's questions and we provide explanations. And that is, if you like, at the heart of what an interview is. Um, I think in the social sciences and in sociology in particular, which is obviously my background, there was a moment um, and it, it, it coincided with a whole series of socio-political um, developments um, um, in sociology um, and in sociology itself. So it was this move from large scale um, say social mobility studies or, or you know those large scale forms of investigation to understand um, social trends and social change to beginning to engage with the questions of well why are these trends occurring you know why are people doing the things that they're doing and I, for me one of the most brilliant um, people who formulated um, what we now use very much as um, um, interview methodology in, in sociology is, is in the work of Anne Oakley. And Anne Oakley was interviewing, she was saying, well, you know, okay, all of these things about social mobility, there was keeps taking men as the head of the household. And, you know, they're looking at all of these sorts of, they were seeing family works in these ways. And um, so and when I say, when I said earlier about coinciding with various other socio-political um, trends that this was with the rise of feminism um, and a more concerted engagement with ex the experiences of women so how and why and what were women doing um, in ways that that produced particular forms of social trend so Anne Oakley conducted interviews about experiences of motherhood about their experiences of housework and things like that and of course what she was doing was engaging with these big sociological questions around the reproduction of labour um, and the repro reproduction of families and, and the reproduction of society in and of itself. And her position was these had been treated as very much marginal sorts of questions. And she's like, no. And one of the points that she, she made was that actually women very much appreciated talking about their experiences. So um, Jennifer Mason, whose um, work I draw on, and um, she's written you know, seminal texts on research methodology, and I recommend her um, to my students all the time. She talked about um, research interviews as conversations with a purpose. That's, that was her pithy summary of what is an interview. 
Um, but she also went on to talk about qualitative research methodology more generally. And obviously we're talking about qualitative, in, I'm talking about qualitative interviews here, as um, conversations with a purpose in ways that matter about things that matter. So um, it's interesting that it's a, a sort of traditionally feminist or, or female method. Yeah, I, I, so um, Henry Mayhew, he wrote um, London Labour and the London Poor. And, and for me, I think it's one of the first very rich ethnographers in, you know, these social studies sorts of um, canon. Um, but he also, prior to that, his breakthrough text and research was on um, cholera um, districts, so districts in London that had experienced cholera outbreaks and epidemics. And um, he produced a whole series of leaflets. So was, that, was, that was what he was, he was focused on doing. And he interviewed people in, in that research and he interviewed those people again. And that was in, I don't know, the 1850s or something like that. You know, so when we're talking about interviews somehow emerging from a feminist sensibility, I, I don't think that that's the case. This would go back to your introduction. I think that interviews are absolutely very, very much about, um, you know, profound characteristics of human um, communication. But there has been this very long tradition in the social sciences um, or in that social sciences canon of, of interviewing people. And one of the things that I think is so amazing about London Labour and the London Poor or that piece on cholera districts um, you know, he went into Bermondsey and he reproduces um, the voices of those people that were living at the time. And in the introduction to London Labour and London Poor, sorry, I don't quite remember who wrote that, but he, the, the, the comment that was made was that Henry Mayhew elevated the voices of, the, of people into print who had never formally been dignified in that way. So for me, one of the most powerful aspects of qualitative methodology is this um, ability to allow people to some, you know, to a certain degree, speak for them, speak for themselves. And those voices bring, I think, research very much alive. That's really fascinating, especially in the context of dementia research, where um, a lot of people are, a lot of people with dementia are often sort of ignored and not able, not given the chance to speak for themselves. Jemima, I'll bring you into the conversation. Can you tell us yeah. how this, you know, is, has this appeared in your research and in your experience? Yeah, no, definitely. So I've used um, interviews in sort of various uh, different ways uh, in terms of, yeah, sort of exploring how people with dementia experience care. Um, so I'm interested in sort of post-diagnosis care and uh, particularly sort of communication aspects of care. Um, so I've um, sort of used interviews alongside other methods to explore people's experiences of communication with people with dementia and carers. Um, and I've also done sort of several other kind of interview studies with um, clinicians and other types of patients as well. It's just such a powerful method, exactly what you're saying and exactly what you're saying there in terms of like giving the voice to people. And, and even not that long ago in dementia research, interviews were always conducted with the carers or always conducted, you know, with, with informants that were seen as the, the able to give the voice to people with dementia. But I think we're starting to 
realize more and more that by adapting methodologies we can include people with dementia even in in when their condition gets more sort of severe how, how is that how do you prepare for that it sounds impossible <laughs> I think that's the kind of key I mean yeah sort of learning that I've had through all the different projects that I've worked on is that you obviously in research you have a research question that you want to answer and but I think it's very especially in early career research you think you redo all the reading and you think this is how I'm going to answer it this is my plan I'm going to go in it's going to be like this I have a script I have you know what I'm going to do this is my topic guide I'm going to put the audio recorder down we're going to sit opposite a table and bash out these topics and actually that's not sort of reality and you have to think well I can prepare as much as I can prepare but then I'm going to sort of go with the flow and see what happens and I think especially with dementia and with the older population you've got to realize you're slotting into someone's life you're going to be there for sort of half an hour just talking to them and there's lots of other things that they're experiencing and are going on and you've just got to you've got to capture that and you've got to capture what their their you've got to honor what their perspectives are and it might be different from what your original sort of bullet pointed plan of what you're going to talk about was but that's kind of yeah how how you adapt really and I, so I suppose that's not helpful for people who like to plan. <laughs> so I guess my, my, way, my way of planning and preparing is that I think, right, this is what I want to do. I'll do a few interviews and see how it goes. And, and there may be things that I might want to change. As I sort of gone on and I thought, you know, well, it's helpful for people with dementia, for example, to have prompts. This might be something to talk about later so to help prompt people's memory. Um, so quite recently for my fellowship, I, I thought, right, I'm going to take a video recorded some consultations. I'm going to take it for the interviews and I'll be able to say, that. look at this part of the recording. What did you feel here? And then the first three interviews, the people were just like, oh, I don't want to watch video. Why have you got your laptop out? <laughs> you know, they were all, they all happened to be men in their kind of 80s, 90s. They weren't interested in laptops. They weren't interested in recordings. They weren't, you know, they just wanted to chat. And I thought, you know, I panicked. I thought, well, that's what I said I do. I said I do these video assisted interviews. And, and then I thought, actually, it doesn't matter. I'm still capturing their experiences. I'm still having a conversation with a purpose, which is what I wanted to do, you know, and I think it's to do with that. It's to do with not panicking. <laughs> it's basically you prepare as much as you can and don't panic if it, if it doesn't happen according to plan. It's That's really interesting. And, and Karen, I wonder if you could weigh in on this, because one of the things um, I read a lot about when I was writing about interviewing is the sort of power dynamic that often exists between the researcher and the, and the participant. But in that situation where you're having to, you're, you know, you're as the researcher just going with the flow and taking a bit of a backseat, that power dynamic changes quite a lot. And Karen, I don't know if you have any sort of input on that. I know it's a bit left field. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that there was certain sorts of power asymmetries at play in interview situations. I think one of the most interesting ones is the one where the interviewee is the expert mm. and the researcher is properly trying to get a sense of their, their view of things um, because they're treating their view of things as a particular form of evidence that can inform on the social world in particular ways. So that's, that's really interesting and I think often in interview settings um, trying to establish that from the outset, it, it can be quite challenging because people, you know, the, the academic comes in and they seem to be the expert in Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, and so that's, that I always, I've always found that to be re an, a really interesting um, dynamic to work through in, in, in yeah. interview encounters. 
I think that that all too often we focus or there's an over focus on the researcher researched relationship when we're thinking about power asymmetries. Um, one of the things that I found in research or research that I've been associated in is that participants, you know, we're very concerned with things like coercion mm. um, and the idea that people can be coerced to say more than they want to say or that we're taking their stories away from them and we're reappropriating them in order, for, you know, to serve our own, our, our own ends. I think that these are important questions. I think that these are important ethical concerns that we do absolutely have to address within the researcher-research relationship. But I also think that we have to think more broadly than that. And we have to understand what are the broader sets of relationships at play? Um, and how do they constrain or enable, how do they affect the relationships, you know, the researcher-research relationships? Because it's, we're never one-on-one. We're always, you know, okay in interpersonal encounters, but that we're always part of much broader social relational um, networks. And you mentioned earlier, I think it was you, Jemima, you mentioned about people originally, um, it was only their carers that were interviewed and people with dementia were seen to be, you know, didn't, not having the capacity, for example, um, to talk about their own experience. And so it's those broader sets of relationships, I think, that also form part of, of the research encounter. So thinking through the power asymmetries, not only in the research-research relationship, but also the actual doing of the research, what, which relationships, when, through whom, how, what was needed, that not only allows us to engage with ethical reflection, on power asymmetries, but that also provides additional empirical insight mm. into the lived circumstances of the people with whom we are researching. And I, that's quite, quite, it's easy to say, it's sometimes quite complex for people to work through. Something that I struggled with in one of the, my first sort of big interview studies with people with dementia, which was I'm in my PhD where I was exploring how um, people were told that they had dementia. So I video recorded the diagnosis uh, consultation and interviewed people under a week later um, about their experience. And I, you know, they, they'd just been told they had dementia in a, in a memory clinic kind of hospital setting. And then I went to visit them at home sort of four or five days later. I'd met them for the first time in that hospital said I'm a researcher from and then I went and visited them at home and a lot of the time they thought that I was there to help them with dementia with their care where they had questions about their diagnosis and I had to sort of keep saying oh no I'm, that's not me I'm not you know I'm not that person you'll get another appointment at some point you know but it's and it's sort of and that was one of the big challenges I had in that study was that I sort of they didn't see who I was they saw me as a medical person because they met me in a hospital and that created a different power thing I sort of learned as I went along to be very clear about who I was and how I wasn't an expert and how I wanted to chat about how they felt. But it was, yeah, you had to really think about that at the start. And I'm sure that that affected the answers they were giving me as well. Yeah. So just to say on that point, um, Andrea Holomox um, has written some really interesting stuff um, about her experiences in research 
um, with people in, in uh, the people with um, learning disabilities who are also sexual offenders, and she's in, interviewed them in you know their institutional setting, and that that has been something that she's found repeatedly. Um, so I, that it, absolutely, and it's very much about context as well. That's absolutely fascinating. So now we've had a good discussion about what this method is and the trials, tribulations and considerations that, that we need to have going into it. Let's have a quick fire round of some straightforward questions to both guests to see how we put this method into practice. Karen, the first ones are for you. How should someone prepare for interviews? Through um, very exhaustive literature review, talking to gatekeepers, being very, very familiar with existing data in the area and existing findings and research. Fantastic. Should someone take notes, record the conversation? Um, there have been decades of debate around this. Um, people writing down notes in an interview can be very off-putting, um, but equally um, people don't necessarily like being recorded. And I think every researcher has that horrible moment of listening back to their own voice for the first time, even the 10th time and thinking, oh gosh, do I really sound like that? So um, my personal preference is to record interviews because it allows you to focus entirely on what it is that somebody is saying, but it also captures ambient events um, in the interview um, context. We also tend to treat interview data um, what people say, we, we try and rep repeat it verbatim in order to demonstrate the accuracy of, of our, own, our own readings of those data. I think that's highly problematic, um, but nevertheless, um, having transcripts that can persist and endure over time can be tremendously helpful for you know, primary and secondary qualitative analysis. And do you have any tips on, on how to actually undertake the interview? Um, I think that, um, as we've been discussing, that interviews are human encounters and human interactions. And I think that Jemima's um, research absolutely demonstrates the need to negotiate and navigate carefully, both in order to ac access um, some, a participant and to, if you like, persuade them to be part of your, your research study. Um, I think that these are long processes um, and so in terms of you know preparing an interview or preparing for an interview I think this is very much dependent on who it is you're you're interviewing. How do you keep the participant on track and focused? I personally only have about six questions I, and I don't have many prompts either. I um, think that um, if people go off track, um, that's important, you know, because I've brought questions to the interview in order to explore what it is that their experiences have been. And if my questions don't adequately reflect that or elicit um, accounts of that, then I think it's really, really important to listen to what it is, in fact, that people want to tell you about. It might be something completely and utterly different. They don't want to talk about um, you know, their health condition, they want to talk about their pets or something like that, but there'll be a reason, be, it'll be really important um, why that is. So I think to be open in the interview is absolutely essential, otherwise it's just sort of listening to yourself, really, 
Um, and I found that the worst interviews that I have done are the ones with the most questions. Um, I will just say here that the best interviews that I've ever listened to in my life um, were by um, Professor Joanna Borna in a study that she did under Timescapes, um, interviewing people that, that she and Bill, by the way, described as the oldest generation, people over the age of 75. And um, those interviews are in the Timescapes archive. And I think that they're an absolute masterclass in um, a, you know, Joanna's ability to ask questions, listen to what it is that people say, and then pull that together with something that that person says maybe 10, 15 minutes later, an hour later. Mm. Um, she, she keeps the threads, multiple threads of an interview alive throughout. She's an oral historian, so there's obviously an additional layer of training in there. Um, and, and it absolutely shows there's just stunning, eye-wateringly brilliant interviews. I love them. I'll have to give those a listen then. <laughs> Um, so you 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 ended the interviews. You've got hours of recordings and piles and piles and piles of transcriptions. This is definitely not giving me flashbacks. How do you best analyse the results? Are there tools or technology that help? Or um, I do various bits. So um, I mean, you talked about Jemima's approach um, with conversation and analysis, and then you, you mentioned grounded theory and. Um, part of my background much earlier in my career was in discourse analysis and so on and so forth. I think that you can read one paragraph in an interview transcript, looking at, you know, looking at it thematically, looking at it in terms of its content, looking at it in terms of the discourses that are at play in that. In that. Um, at the moment, I'm going back and I'm looking at interviews that were conducted um, under um, a study called Intergenerational Exchange, which was looking at midlife grandparents in low-income contexts. And I'm looking for the men in the transcripts, so just whenever any man is, is mentioned in the, in the transcripts for a book that I'm writing with Dr. Anna Tarrant at the University of Lincoln. And I'm finding that I'm missing them, even though I'm going through line by line by line, there'll be an uncle or a cousin mm. or a brother or a nephew or something, and, and I'm missing them. So even if you're looking at one very specific category, such as men in interviews, that can be really difficult to capture on your first read through. So don't expect to do your analysis on one read through, even two, even 10, actually. Personally, I do a, a, a free flow read through on a transcript where I just sort of brainstorm and I'll, I'll write that in a transcript. But I have, I, I'll use search and find as well mm. on Word docs, and that helps me identify things. That's, that's can be really, really useful. Um, and I um, also do use Envivo as well on occasion, but I think that that's very tricky because I think that people then tend to use codes as proxies for evidence. And, and I, 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 have, I, I would dispute that. That's probably a whole other book in itself, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. So Jemima, it's your turn. Are you ready? I am. I'm unmuted. So when you're interviewing, do you have to change anything when you're interviewing someone with dementia or their carer compared to younger people? Um, short answer, yes. <laughs> I think there's... <laughs> but yeah, I think that there's... 
it's not just to do I think it's to do with what we were talking about earlier in terms of making sure that you're having a sort of conversation rather than an interview and a conversation with a purpose obviously but a conversation and I think that's to do with making people comfortable um so it's not about being like this person has dementia so I'll do it this way but you've got to sort of read the situation read the experience um there's basic things with older people where you've got to think about whether they can hear you properly especially I've got quite a soft high voice that's difficult they're going to fatigue easier um so just thinking about keeping things shorter or having breaks um but I think the main thing, um, so there's a uh, research project that my colleagues at Bristol did, so Dr. Joe Webb and a group of researchers with dementia called the Forget-Me-Nots. And they showed how you can really put, they did a lot of video recordings of different types of dementia interactions. And they showed that how you can really put pressure on people with dementia by asking very specific questions with very specific answers. And actually it might be better to just create an environment um, where something else is going on, maybe you're going for a walk, maybe you're looking at a photo, um, maybe you're doing some gardening or something, and you can have a conversation that's not putting pressure on them in a kind of question-answer format to respond, but just creating an environment where they feel comfortable talking. And then you can sort of gently put in conversations that you want to talk mm. about as part of your research question and aim. But yeah, it's, it's basically, I think, about making people feel as comfortable as possible and, and thinking of those um, those factors. Um, I should, there's a great report for the NIHR School for Social Care that was written by Samsi and Manthorpe, um, which is really detailed, uh, brilliant about adapting qualitative methods to, to dementia in sort of every step in terms of ethics, you know, every, every step. So I really recommend reading that if, yeah. So um, in, in the current context of this pandemic, how do you adapt doing interviews online versus face-to-face? Um, I'm going to admit that I haven't done that. <laughs> um, I was on maternity leave for the first half of the pandemic, so I haven't, and just where my project is at the moment, I'm not doing them. But I am um, a co-founder of a group called Demiqual, uh, where we are um, sort of group of researchers who are interested in, in adapting qualitative methods for dementia. And we had a whole meeting on this a couple of months ago, so I feel that I can report uh, accurately. Um, and But I do think that lots of people are still kind of working out uh, mm. <laughs> in terms of how... I think there's challenges um, that, like we were talking about with fatigue and hearing, that's going to be, we all get tired of talking on Zoom than we do on person. It's always harder to hear on Zoom than it is on person. So it's thinking about that. Um, although I did, was talking to a clinician who was doing memory assessments on teams, and he said that you can put subtitles on, which is quite good for people who um, find it hard of hearing. But lots of my colleagues who had done this stuff said that although there are challenges, um, there are also sort of, they found that when it worked, it worked really well. And often the older people or people with dementia, they had potentially, they had needed help to kind of set up a Zoom or something, but they actually felt kind of a great sense of excitement and confidence that they'd managed to do it. And that kind of created quite a nice atmosphere to, to engage with people and research in. Um, I also, there was someone who had an idea about sending people biscuits with the interview. Uh, invitation and then you've still got you're mirroring the idea of you're sharing having a cup of tea and a biscuit together but you're sort of even though you're through the screen um so yeah I think there's there's challenges and there's advantages I really like the idea of being sent biscuits and <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll go for the last question how do you decide how many people to interview this is the uh question the qualitative researcher always has to <laughs> <laughs> anything um I'll try and be short traditionally or what not traditionally even what is always used is a term called data saturation 
which is this um, idea that you interview people until you're not getting any new data. Um, there's various problems with that because it assumes that um, you're doing the analysis perfectly alongside, alongside your interviews, which you might not be. Um, it also is very based in kind of commonly used theories of qualitative analysis, such as thematic analysis or grounded theory, which are looking at themes, which not all qualitative research approaches things in that way. Um, there's kind of, uh, I call it newer, I don't know actually exactly when I think, there's kind of another, an alternative idea called information power, um, which is where you do interviews until, basically until the research, you feel that the research question is answered, but that's something that you can think, you can think about in advance, because you can think, well, what's my research question? What, who do I need to talk to to answer it, um, ideally? So you could think, I want to, I'm trying to find out what people's experiences of a year post-diagnosis is. Um, I, I want, as part of my research, to get a diverse group. So I want to talk to younger people with dementia, older people with dementia, people from different backgrounds. And then you think maybe I want, you know, I don't know, five to 10. I'll start off with five from each of these groups. So that will be the samples. You know, there's, there's things you can work this out, I think. And then the other thing to think about is, I think you've just got to be flexible and adaptable, like lots of qualitative research that is. But, um, you know, so you don't want to see, I'm definitely doing 20 qualitative interviews. And then you find the first five tank. <laughs> and then you think, well, I've only got 15 good ones. Um, you know, so you want to think, well, actually, no, I'll keep going. I, I'm, it's a sort of reflexive process and adaptive process. And luckily, you know, people who understand qualitative research understand that. So it's not like quant where you've got to say, I'm doing this exact number for this reason. It's, you know, it's just, you've just got to be aware of your research question, aware of your participants, aware. You just want to make sure you answer the question and honor people's voices. I genuinely am feeling so much better about my research. <laughs> I wish I, I really do wish I'd had this conversation three years ago. <laughs> you could have been doing all the right things. <laughs> Kari, yeah. Can I come in on this as well? Yeah. I think that um, people really do um, get a little bit wound up by this question of how many interviews is enough and Professor Rod's, Ed, Ros Edwards University of Southampton has um, has written on this and a number of other people have as well. Um, so it might be worth going and having a look at those. Um, one of the things that I would say is that there's quite a problematic assumption that's built into those sorts of questions. And I think that does come from a quite a, a quantity perspective, mm. which is that it's only in the fieldwork that we're going to find our answers. But we know that that's not the only data that we're using on or drawing upon. So for me, I don't think an interview is ever exhausted. I, I, I just don't think so, but then you'll expect to hear that from me as someone who's very passionate about qualitative secondary analysis. Um, and, um, and, and in terms of interviews being enough, I love your um, answer, um, Jemima, about how might our data help to support us address these sorts of questions. I hope that's helpful. And I also want to reassure people that even if you only get one interview in your PhD and everything else fails, that'll tell you something. And there will be other data out there. There will be some other way of researching it. Um, don't worry. I think that's probably the best bit of advice for any PhD student. Just don't panic. No, if you can't, if you can't get interviews for something, there'll be some online forum. That yeah. can, that's, you know, there'll be data there. There will be data in, you know, the UK Data Archive. That they've, they've got 
mountains of, of data, there will be data, there will be something that you can use in order to um, think through your, your research question. Brilliant. So let's think, what have we learned so far? We've learned that we have a new favourite phrase, which is a conversation with purpose. <laughs> so what else have we learned? We've learned to, well, I think that the biggest thing I would take away from this actually is to relax a bit. And, and the idea of just sort of being, like you say, being reflexive and sort of you can plan for every eventuality, but in reality, you just have to go with the flow and, and, and take each minute and moment as it comes. And I, I think that's quite an important takeaway from that. Um, so in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss the common pitfalls, challenges and how to avoid them. Despite your best efforts to prepare, you're still going into a room with someone either online or in, in reality that you don't fully know and you never quite know what they'll say. So Jemima, can you tell us um, what challenges did you come across in delivering your research and what might you do differently? The challenges come when something happens that you don't expect, which is exactly what Karen was just saying. That you know, the, and but actually, I think the main way to get across these is by by accepting that they're learning points, and especially in PhD stage, and also accepting that you, you know, I think when you come into research, you think there's a sort of research plan that you've got this protocol at the beginning, and every single thing of research that I've worked on has it's changed. Things have happened differently. You know, it, things had to adapt, and that's what the wonders of qualitative research is that it, it embraces that. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, there, there are core challenges. Working with, with people with dementia is a, a very specific, you know, I mean, as the common phrase is, once you've met one person with dementia, you've, you've met one person with dementia, everyone's different. But there is a challenge that comes with, with that, uh, with working with um, people who may have some impaired cognitive capacity. And especially when you're you're thinking about traditional interviewing methods like I was saying earlier but it is I think it's just rolling with the flow rolling with the punches being adaptive and taking everything as a learning experience um and nothing ever goes wrong that sort of thing if you're just learning from things <laughs> so Karen what would you say are the common pitfalls for interviewing and how would you avoid them so I, I think common pitfalls are in qualitative research is to try and treat an interview as a method, something that is a set of relationships that you form. So, um, uh, um, and also, as I said earlier, the idea that somehow the only fieldwork data that you have is, is within, within that interview. Um, being very, very aware of, of, you know, keeping fieldwork diaries and logbooks and so on and so forth, I think is absolutely essential to qualitative research because that allows us to capture um, the, the production of the research overall. That would be one of the pitfalls is trying to treat it as, as, as a one-off event or something that you do and that it has to be done in this way. You asked me earlier, Leah, about um, you know people going off piste and, 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 and whatever. Don't panic, don't panic before the interview, don't panic in the interview and don't panic after. This is all, these are human interactions. These are human relations. These are part of the social world. This is not something that's happening somehow external um, to real life or external. Is they're unusual, um, you know, they're, they're fabricated in very particular ways, but nevertheless, they, you know, they are part of, of ongoing 
of our ongoing lives. So don't panic, that would be the, the, the second one. I think the other one is assumptions about technology, major pitfall, the biggest mistake or the biggest error um, that I've come across are review uh, interviews, not recording. And people absolutely, they just absolutely lose it when that happens. Again, don't panic, sit down and, and, and make a record as detailed as you can um, of the interview. Don't try and treat um, interview data as unproblematically data. Your recordings and your own uh, notes about interviews are as important as, as what it is that people say. People's, what people say isn't just a direct form of evidence. You will always be treating it analytically in, in very particular ways. That's definitely um, hits a nerve with the recording um, technology not quite working. I, whenever I've done interviews, I've had a almost compulsive need to test my, all of my equipment before we start and <laughs> make sure it's all recording perfectly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's yes, all sound advice. So in this final segment, I'm going to give our expert Karen one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. So, Karen, over to you. So I mentioned earlier um, Anne Oakley's work. I would absolutely go away and, and just read all of it that you can get hold of. I would read um, the books by Jennifer Mason. Uh, her work um, is, is immaculately written, absolutely brilliant. But I finally would encourage you to go away and read as many interviews as you can. Go and have a look at who, who other people's interviews. Um, I think that um, I learned so much, for example, from Joanna Bornat's interviews. How, how to, I mean, you know, the techniques are absolutely stellar. So go and have a look at some, some interviews. This, this has been a really good and really interesting first episode. And I really thank you both for, for coming to this. Um, I've learned so much and it, it's just been fascinating. I hope you've both enjoyed it and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, well, I have, thank you. Good. I have, it's been, it's been lovely to hear about your work. It's been, it's been really great. So if listeners want to know more about the interviewing method, um, about the MCRM, Dementia Researcher, and our guests today, you will find all the links in the text that came with the show. And remember, if you found this useful and learned some stuff, then please share this podcast with your friends or leave a review online. Make sure to subscribe to the Dementia Researcher podcast in your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. But all that's left for me, really, as I wrap up my interview, um, is to say again a huge thank you to our guests. They've, we've had the wonderfully helpful Dr Jemima Dooley sharing her experiences, and in the expert corner, we've had the miraculous Dr Karen Hughes. Thank you both. It has been an absolute pleasure. So we will be back tomorrow, continuing on our journey as part of the Research Methods Festival, where I'll be joined by Dr David Griffiths and Dr Anne-Nicole Casey discussing social network analysis, which I must say is nothing to do with Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm.